Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and coming up on today's episode I'm going to be talking music because I'm going to be joined by the front man from the band Therapy, Andy Kearns and I'm absolutely thrilled that he's took the time to talk to me because growing up Trouble Gum for me was up there with Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Nirvana Nevermind, Weezer the Blue Album, Green Day Dookie. It was that textbook album that all of my friends in my age group at college and at school absolutely worshipped. I was in a band growing up and we used to cover Screamager all the time. They're a band that are deep, deep in my heart and mean an awful lot to me. So I'm thrilled that I got some time with Andy face to face to record an episode for Mark and me. Before we get into that, I just want to thank everyone who tuned into my last episode. It was only a week ago. At the moment, it's great. There's like all these opportunities coming along to interview people. And I was lucky enough to speak to Ted Gergen. Now, he is a film director and has took a lot of time to make two absolutely awesome films. So first of all, he did We Are Still Here and most recently Mohawk. And the good thing about Mark and me... I've been able to go out there and speak to the big names like Anthony Hopkins, Kevin Smith, Jason Mewes, Corey Feldman, all these big names in the industry, Neil Blomkamp, etc. But it's also great to introduce new people to you. So people like Tom Payton, an upcoming film director, and obviously Ted Gagan. And it's great to see people that are now who have listened to that, have gone and watched the film. We are still here and took the time to tweet me and Ted to say how much you've enjoyed it. And that's what I love doing about this podcast. So thank you to everyone that's took the time to listen. So let's talk about today's episode. I was absolutely honoured to be able to sit down and attend the most recent therapy gig in Nottingham in support of their brand new album Cleave and it's a return to form for me. This band have got 15 albums now and they're still as passionate, they've still got the drive, the live show is phenomenal, the crowd absolutely loved everything about it and I was one of them and I was very lucky to attend that show and the new album Cleave is so so good. Honestly, go out and buy it stream it do whatever you need to do because it's an absolute awesome album and i love it from start to finish but let's just get straight to the interview yeah so here it is here's the interview with me and andy talking all things therapy so andy thanks for joining me today on the uh, mark and me podcast what i wanted to start with is taking it right back for the listeners so you formed in 1989 showing my age i was only seven i mean to have 30 years in the business i mean what was it back in the 80s that made you want to start a band it was just happenstance, really. I mean, the other founder member of the band was a guy called Fife Ewing, an amazing drummer from uh, Northern Ireland too. And we just—I uh, was in a couple of bands that were sort of indie rock bands. He was in a kind of punk covers band, and both of us were simultaneously—we were unaware of each other, but we were listening to things like Big Black, Sonic Youth, a lot of the city's noise, the stuff that was happening just before Nirvana exploded. Yeah. And uh, we did a, there was a charity gig um, in a polytechnic in Northern Ireland and, I, and I, I watched this punk covers band and thought the drummer was amazing. I mean, they were doing damn songs, Susie and the Banshees songs, Dead Kennedy songs. And the thing that stood out for me was the drummer and afterwards I got chatting to him and it just happened that we liked the same kind of music. And then because he didn't live that far from me, uh, we got together every now and then. I brought my guitar over to his dad's house and, um, we just jam and then we decided we'd get a band together so that was really why because there wasn't anything about at the time playing the music we liked and we were also very open-minded you know we, we listened to everything from punk hardcore noise 
Belgian techno, Be- uh, Belgian or Belgian new beat, early acid house tracks. James Brown, Can, a lot of crowd rock. So collective. And yeah, and that that's exa- that's what was good. So we weren't afraid. Whereas a lot at that time, I mean, indie bands were meant to be indie. Yeah. Metal bands were hair metal bands. You know, it was everything was very compartmentalized. Yeah. And we came from. East Antrim, like little towns called Ballyclare and Lauren. So, you know, music was the most important thing to us. Whereas in Belfast and Derry and Dublin, it was all about the look. And did NME think it was cool? And, you know, yeah. would, it, would it have been on the cover of Kerrang? Would it have been? Whereas with us, it was just about making the music. So, what sort of age were you when you were actually. Can you remember when you first got your first guitar? Or was it a present for Christmas or your birthday? Or did you save up? The very first bass guitar I got, I mean, I got a bass guitar first because whenever. Let's see, so I would have been. I would have been 12 and I got two things within a month of each other Uh, my heroes at the time were John Jack Brunel from The Stranglers yeah (laughs) Peter Hook from Joy Division I really liked him Um, and I got a little Jetson bass which I had a paper round and I saved up to buy records and I got there was a little guitar shop called Sport and Sound and the reason it was called Sport and Sound was half of it sold sports gear to the local schools and the other half sold vinyl and musical equipment I love the uh, the mix there yeah and it's st- the shop's still there actually it's in a little village called a little town called Ballyclare in County Andrew and I bought a Jetson bass guitar and a 5 watt amp and then I uh, within about a month there was um, a friend of mine at school and his uncle had died and he came up the road and said you really like playing guitar he thought I was a guitarist yeah. and um, he gave me a Shielek semi-acoustic guitar which his uncle who had been in a covers band had left whenever he died the, it was, stuff was split yeah. so I was I ended up with a Shielek six string and a Jetson bass and I mean throughout up until I was about 19 I played a little bit of guitar but my main passion was the bass guitar yeah and uh, I remember getting that in, as I say, sport and sound, getting given this gun. They were my two, they had a bass and a guitar and a, a Jetson amp and a Carlsberg Cobra amp, which I bought from Baird's Music when I was 14, that's in Belfast. And I had this stuff until I got a supermarket job when I was 17 and I bought a Boss Delay pedal, a Boss Flanger and a Boss Distortion. Yep. Which I I still own to this day. Is that the uh, Boss Purple pedal? The yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone yeah, had one, yeah, yeah, and then you had the green yeah. one for the phaser. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and I had those, and it was really. Um, I mean, to, to cut a long story short, the reason why I ended up a guitarist is whenever therapy formed, I was whenever I'd met Fife, I was still considering myself a bass player yeah. that could play a little bit of guitar, and we had these songs, and I would bring a guitar over, and and the sales pitch was, you know, well. The, I've got these riffs, I've got these bits of music, five I've got these drum beats, and we'll get a guitarist in at some point. Yeah. And I'll be the bass player. And it ended up Fife really liked the way I played the guitar because I think I wasn't a classic at this time, you know, it was a Guns N' Roses thing, so it wasn't really fast kind of I was playing more the riffs that I had were more like really melodic bass lines. Yeah. So eventually we ended up deciding well I'll stick with guitar. And I think for the first six months of therapy, Michael McKeegan, the bass player, yeah. current bass player, he went to school with Fife. Oh, and that's right. how we got him in, yeah. So Five went, look, if if we're now looking for a bass player, not a guitarist, yeah. I know this guy and he'll fit the bill. He's a cle- He likes metal, but he's very eclectic. You know, he listens to Public Enemy, he listens to um, lots of other stuff, not just metal. And um, we got him on board and that was it then. So it was kind of set in stone. But the idea, for the first six months of therapy, the idea was at some point we will get a, a him proper guitarist in. Yeah. But I think my style just kind of stood at the, um, the eclectic nature of the band in the end. 
So were you, when you were writing songs in the start, were you actually saying to yourself that you were going to be the singer from day one, or was that something that you just kind of found yourself doing because you were with your drummer and you were playing bass, you just started singing some melodies, or were you always going to be the vocalist? Well, initially I was going to be the vocalist, and then we, because we were in the Huskadoo, Fife wanted to sing, but Fife, yeah. Fife was very, very shy. Yeah. I mean, incredibly shy, and he had never sang before. No. So... The deal that we had would be that when we did a set, we watched, there's a, a classic Husker Du video from Camden Pass called Makes No Sense that was available commercially. And the way Husker Du used to set up was Bob Mould, the guitarist, would sing one song, the following song would be sung by the drummer, yeah. John Hart. That was a dynamic. So we decided we would follow that too because we loved Husker Du. So whenever I would write vocal melodies and we would kind of go, well, I'll sing this one. Ah, uh, for this next song, right, five, you can sing it. And he yeah. went, okay. So I would like literally sit three feet across from him in a room and he would have a drum kit with brushes. And I would go, this song goes like this. And he, he would try and follow the melody and the lyrics. And then once he got it and he said, that'd be it. So that was all great when we were rehearsal. And then when we went in to record, it was problematic because he, he didn't like singing in front of anybody else. So, you know, we had to close all the curtains. He had a bottle of wine, all this kind of stuff. Um, and certainly, for, you know, this continued on until the first few gigs. But then I think once he kind of got over it, then it became what we did. Yeah. But I, I'd always, initially I was going to be the singer. But then, as I say, post Husker Do, we, we were going to have two singers. And then I think by the time of the Trouble Gum record, it kind of revert, reverted back to me yeah. doing most of the vocals. So when you formed in 89, um, and obviously it only took five years for you to release Trouble Gum. Mm. That album, I've never... I'm 36 now. Mm. Anyone I know loves that album. Mm. Anyone I know grew up with Appetite for Destruction, mm. Green Day Dookie, yeah. and everyone had Trouble Gun. Yeah, yeah. It's the go-to album. Mm -hmm. You know, How does it feel, looking back, at releasing something that was so religious for any like yeah. rock, punk fan? It's not easy to achieve that album that everyone knows. Uh, I, I can't believe it. No. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very grateful, and we all are in the band, yeah. because, you know... Occasionally we get another question that goes, oh, do you, do you ever regret only being known for the one album? We go, no, of course not. No. You know, I, I mean, everyone knows Motorhead for the Ace of Spades. Yeah. Everyone knows Therapy for Trouble Gum. I, I'm ecstatic. You know, I'm so grateful that after all these years, yeah. we've just got one piece of work that if you go anywhere in the world and say Therapy, they'll say Trouble Gum, but they'll know it. They'll know yeah. the band. And that's great. And it's good to have that in their back pocket. And also, you know, I know it's a good record. It was, And it was just right for the time. But I think... The nature that it's agitated guitar music with sort of anxious, anxious lyrics. Who doesn't go through that in their life at some exactly. point? So people yeah. can discover it at any time, really. So it was only a year later that you played Castle Donington, 95. Mm. Now, the, the, the way that that album elevated you, mm. you couldn't have been prepared to be this band that was starting out four or five years. Yeah trying to get your sound, you release this album that blows up. Yeah. The next thing you're on, before Metallica, mm. that must be, I don't know how you'd even get your head around that in such a short space of time. It must have been, because that's huge. Yeah, well, we'd done Donington the year before. Yeah. And we were second on the bill on, yeah. on the main stage. And that I enjoyed that. That was my favourite ever month. Was that the one? Yeah. I loved that. There was no pressure. The, what ruined the second one for me was, first of all, we got a call saying, uh, Metallica want you to be um, on the bill because yeah. they chose the bill that year yeah. but, you know um, they've never met you so <laughs> Lars wants to actually meet you so myself and Michael were flown to France where Lars was attending a what was Slash's band called Slash's Snake Pit oh right yeah yeah we were playing in Paris and we were told you're going to go to Slash's Snake Pit and you're going to go backstage 
and you're going to meet Lars, and if Lars likes you, you'll be on the bill for Donington. No pressure. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm a metallic fan of yeah. Michael, so he flew over there, he was a gentleman, you know, we had a few beers with him, we watched Slash, we went back to the hotel room, went, I can't believe we, we got flown all this way to have two pints of beer with Lars. Yeah. Um, and then the next day we got it, now what ruined it for me wasn't Metallica, who were brilliant, I mean, uh, we hung out with them and they are really nice. It was when we got to Donington that day, there was a lot of other bands on the bill. Yeah. Who could not believe that a band like us were second from top? Yeah, like people like Slayer and White Zombie. I mean, I know that um, the people from White Zombie were kicking off. The uh, the people from Slayer were kicking off. All the other bands were going, "What the f- hell are yeah. these guys doing so high up the bill?" And they kind of made it known backstage. So, you know, we're quite easygoing guys. Yeah. So if we were in catering, we'd be getting these dirty looks and remarks from American crew and American bands. So it made for a really horrendous atmosphere. So by the time we went on stage. I was in a really foul mood. So what should have been the biggest rock gig in the UK of our lives, I hated it. And it was all right, you know, it went okay yeah. and, and everything. And then Metallica were amazing afterwards. Afterwards, we all went to a nightclub in Birmingham in attendance and Metallica invited us along. We had beers with them. That was really good. But the gig itself was horrendous just because of that. And That's I, such a shame, I, isn't it? It is a shame. At. Yeah, and I really, really enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the year before immensely yeah. when we were as high up the bill. I mean, we've been high up UK bills since in Reading and places yeah. like that. But that one at Donington, it was just ruined by that. And it only seems to happen in the world of in the world of indie. It doesn't really happen in any other music I find apart from British indie rock yeah. and American metal. There's a competitive thing that you no know, whenever I grew up I thought anyone that was into music was part of a gang. Yeah. That's what music we play. That's that's under my impression. I thought yeah. all the bands backstage would all be like, We're in this together, it doesn't really yeah. matter where you are. Well that's, what, all I, the well, that's what we wanted. That was yeah. the dream when we grew up. I mean the, the thing the thing about um about metal bands is it's very competitive especially in the world of metal where it's all about chops on your guitar and there's a great deal of um, a great deal of bitterness to someone that's maybe spent um, five hours a day practicing sweet picking like Steve, yeah. Steve Vai and Joe yeah. Bonamassa and things like that that ends up seeing a guy that's slightly chubby with a beard playing power chords being higher up the bill than he is yeah. but you know the most famous rock bands in the world at the minute are probably Foo Fighters and Green Day yeah and none of them are exactly Jimi Hendrix. No, and you know, but and they, they the, sell more guitars yeah. than, than Steve Vai does. And even twenty years ago, you had Kurt Cobain playing power chords in yeah, the most well, basic it, yeah. solos way. So. And Kurt Cobain has made more people from uh, that pick up guitars than any amount of shredder. Really. Yeah, yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah. One of the things I like about Trouble Gum, um, even when I listen to it now, it doesn't sound really dated, and I think that's compliments to Chris Sheldon, yes, who, in yeah. my opinion, is one of the best guys out there. He's worked with Biffy Clyro now mm-hmm. and made them what they are. Yeah. What was it like returning to work with him, obviously, on your new album? It must have been nice to get back involved with him and start... Was it the chemistry was back straight away as it was, or...? Well, we spent so much time with Chris back in the day, because we'd done a few EPs yeah. and some tracks with him before Trouble Gum, and then we did Semi Detached in 98 with him. And, we, we, you know, we would see him at London occasionally. He would come to London shows and, and see us, and, you know, I remember him trips and along to gigs bringing Biffy Clyro when he yeah. came to them and one of the times he came to see us in London he brought Grant from Feeder that we knew and oh sweet well yeah so he, it, we, you know, we did kind of we, we did have a relationship with him but um, the thing that surprised us was he had retired from producing yeah and we asked him would he be interested in mixing a record and he said because we had heard he doesn't produce anymore his manager said no he, all he does is mix so he said well who's producing it and I said well to be honest we're just going to do it ourselves so we sent him some demos and he called me one day at home and said, uh, do you know what, I'll actually produce this. And we went, are you sure? Because it means you'll be away from your family because he does everything yeah. at home in his house. Yeah. 
no, I said, you know, how long is it going to take? We said, it'll take two weeks. I went, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And it was great. He came out of retirement to do some production. And it, to be, if I'm absolutely honest, it was almost as if he had never been away. He's very, um, he's very bullshit free, Chris, and he's very straightforward. And he doesn't see any point in wasting any time. No. So he will, if something's not working, he won't indulge you. No. You know, if I decided I wanted an Aeolian harp solo on something, he wouldn't let me do it at, you know, £1,500 a day. Yeah. So he would, he would go, no, this, this is a rubbish idea, let's not even bother going there. And, you know, it cuts out, that's what you need, someone like that, that works with the group. There's been quite a lot of changes for you recently, obviously signing to Marshall Records. Mm. Is it nice to sign to a British label and kind of have that kind of homegrown thing where it's not this big, huge corporate label like EMI and Sony and stuff? Is it quite, is it quite nice, I suppose, getting free amps as well? <laughs> well there's a lot of benefits. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the good thing about it is, yes, it's a home, um, it's, a, it's a UK label. Yeah. It's a worldwide deal, but I mean, the people that we signed to with the UK branch, it's distributed through various other yeah. places around the world. But the core of it, and the the guy that signed us actually, um, when we were on Universal in the late nineties, Steve Tannett, the guy from Marshall, worked with us at Universal. Yeah, and he was he oversaw the Shameless and the Suicide Pact You first records, so you know he actually got in touch with us. Yeah, because uh, we already had a, an, an album by album deal with their last label, and the, you know we just finished. We actually got Chris. We, we what we do in the last few records is we self finance records, and then the label that takes it on picks up the debt. Yeah, and we we did that with this record. But then out of the blue, we got a call from Steve Tanner at Marshall saying, "Look, with Marshall now have a record label. It'll be distributed worldwide. We've got good distribution in Europe and in Canada and in Asia. Um, were you guys interested?" And we said, "Okay." So what are you working on? We sent them the finished album, and they went, "This is great. Yep, no problem." So they took us up from there. And, we did get a few free amps, but I mean, to be honest, it was a bit of a busman's holiday because I, I play Marshall anyway. Yeah. I've done since 1992. Yeah. But it just meant I got a lot of brand, <laughs> I got a lot of brand new versions of what I already play. So with your new album, Cleave, um, I believe when I've listened to it, you're kind of playing to your strengths. It's none of this pretentious stuff. It's just choruses, riffs, mm. catchy choruses, and what you do best. Yeah. And it for me, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the man, but. Um, it's the closest to Trouble Gun, really, for me. It's it's a return to just, this is why therapy are good, this is what we do best, so let's carry on doing it. No, that's the idea, and I think really after this length of time, we 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 went with our instincts. That's yeah. the only way I can put it, when we were writing, because before we, because we listened to so much different music, and we listened to an awful lot of modern music, Yeah, we kind of lose the, the sight of our audience, too. So, like, you know, I, well, there was an album called Crooked Timber in 2009, and I was completely immersed and electronic music and an and early dubstep and an, um, like um, dub reggae records and then krautrock like Khan and, and all these kind of things and we tried to incorporate that into the record and it, it was it was being forced in it's a good record but yeah. it, it's not a therapy record no and as we kind of toured that record as well we then we did the one after there was still articles um, of that in it you begin to realise that you know you're kind of you're losing touch of the core of what the band's identity is yeah. as well. Yeah. So we said, well, you know, let's just, as you said, let's just play to our strengths. We did an album called Disquiet, which started this kind of uh, momentum going of what we do best. And then this record, you know, it was like literally, we did what we would have done before, say five years ago, we would have went, is this a bit too like Trouble Yeah. Should we maybe do something different? And we would throw in a, a weird section. This time around, we just what feels good to play yeah. and what feels natural 
and then of course getting Sheldon and Sheldon knows how to get the classic therapy sounds and he straight away just instinctively so you've got a record which sounds like how therapy remember therapy sound and we've had this quite a lot and we've just come back from three weeks in Europe and we've already done um, four gigs in, in this tour and people go whenever I first heard your new album Cleave I just thought that's what therapy sound like that's yeah. therapy there and I think that's what we want you know, we yeah want, definitely because we always had we worked so hard up until Trouble Gum to get an identifiable sound that people know right away yeah and then because we're so restless and creatively and because we're so you know we're, we're um, constantly listening to new music but we should we've learned to separate what our personal tastes are from yeah. what the band is you know the band as a whole should sound a certain way but that's easier said than done isn't it if you're listening to an album to death you're going to start being influenced by it and you think actually should we yeah. try some of that but maybe yeah. just stick to what you know because it's what got you here in the first place well it is and I think that it's I mean I think we do appreciate all kinds of, there's little bits you can take you know but what we do is we now therapise it yeah you know there's there's no point you know we can take some of the heavy dread and intensity of those early dubstep records, but make them sound like therapy. We don't have to add a dubstep beat. No, you know what I mean. We don't have to do that. So it's uh, and that that's kind of what therapy was always good at in the early days. We would we would we'd be like magpies. We'd pick little bits and pieces of other genres of music, but it would still sound like our kind of intense rock music. Is it is it crazy sitting here now, knowing it's nearly thirty years and you've got fifteen full length albums mm. under your belt? Because when you started, obviously, when you blew up after Trouble Gum. Mm. It could have gone either way. You could have fizzled yeah. out, but not many bands I know now are still releasing music 30 years later. Most people get two or three years now, five yeah. years if you're lucky. It must be... What is it that's making you still want to do it? It's, do you know what? It's really simple. It's we love it. Yeah. And it sounds ridiculous to say this. I know an awful lot of musicians yeah. that don't like doing what they do. I meet musicians that are friends of mine quite on a regular basis, and they go, oh, God, I'm going on tour tomorrow. Or, oh, I've got to go into the studio next week. And uh, it's almost like they got the initial spark of being in a band and they, they graduated from being the guy in front of the mirror with the tennis racket to being yeah. the guy that's in magazines and has got an audience. But then after that, it's like, well, what where do they go now? Whereas with us, I think what the best thing that we ever did was five years hard work before Trouble Gun. Yeah. Because we um, played every single tiny little squat, pub, venue, toilet, all around Europe. Um, self-released our first record, self-released cassettes, printed up our own t-shirts, drove ourselves around venues. And it was only really with the release of Teeth Grinder in 1992 that we got a proper, what you would call, road crew. And yeah. we, we hired people to work with us and we actually surrendered our merchandise to a company that worked with other bands. Yeah. So we, you know, we even by that time with three years of doing everything ourselves, and what that meant was then whenever there was the inevitable, you know, when you're around this length of time, things go up and down. Yeah, definitely. And there was a, you know, there was there was a period probably from two thousand and one to two thousand and three that was really difficult, but because we had put in all that hard work, what would have been difficult for other bands was quotidian for us because uh, I think what happens with some bands is you know they maybe have a big album and they play really high in festival slots they yeah. play Brixton Academy sized gigs all over the world and then they maybe fall out of favour and when they come back they're playing to a lot less people and I know so many people that split up bands after that Yeah, because they, it's almost like they see it as failure Yeah, um, but we just saw as we were still grateful to be playing and things have gone up and down and I, I, you know, I get here today and I'm thinking about the show. I think I can't wait to play the rescue rooms in Nottingham. I love this venue. I love this city. Yeah, I've got relatives live here, friends live here. It's brilliant. 
and unfortunately and I hate to say this about fellow musicians I know musicians that will turn up and say let's plow through this crap one more time we'll be home in four days Yeah. and I always look at them and I've said to their faces you know, if you feel like that do something else Yeah. go and go back to college or yeah. go and do what you really want to do don't give off I mean I've had musicians say that they, they're being angry about having to go into the studio when there's such a nice golf course near the studio. I mean, why bother? Yeah. Why bother? There's kids out there that would give their arm say, to be yeah. in your position. Why would you do that? Yeah. So it never feels like work for you? No, it doesn't. I mean, if, well, if it did, I That's couldn't. the dream, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it gets, don't get me wrong, it gets, it gets boring and it gets tedious a lot of the times. And I'm not... The travel, I like, and I've always yeah. liked traveling. But sometimes... You can wait around sometimes in the studio. You're maybe waiting on equipment that's broken working again. Um, the thing that I find the most annoying about the whole nature of what I do is getting ill yeah. when you're on the road because there's not anything you can do. But if I'm, a, if I'm ill at home, I can go to bed with a water bottle and drink lots of honey and lemon. Yeah. If I'm ill in a hotel room in Berlin and have another seven gigs to do, there's not really a lot I can do about it, apart from call a German doctor, and even then he'll just give me what a British GP would give me. Yeah. So it's, um, that can be hard sometimes, but you know, it's like anything else. There's single mothers living all over the UK that they have to take their kids to school, whether they've got the flu or not. Yeah, so yeah, so like you said, to, to hear other musicians and bands moan about it, when everyone in the world that's in a band, I've been in a band, I'd have given anything, anything to get yeah. those slots or go in the studio yeah. and have that as a job instead of doing the mundane nine to five corporate office yeah. crap. Like, it's quite depressing to hear that people moan yeah. about it. I don't know, I mean, to, to be honest, I think another thing about therapy is, you know, I'm, if it all fell apart tomorrow, I wouldn't have a problem with going back and no. working in an office or having to do factory work or going back to college and doing something else because it's just life I mean yeah. I'm lucky to have this but it could all go tomorrow yeah but and I think that's you know something it's it's nice to have but it's something you've got to have there's I think a lot of things people forget is that as a band regardless of all your intentions of artistic statements the most important people for any band and it doesn't matter if it's Prince or if it's Metallica or if it's Lady Gaga it's the audience yeah it is the audience that makes you what you are yeah. because you can make as many artistic statements as you want and it is wonderful to do that but if no one comes along to see you do it you will get no money you will get no support things like that. and don't you know and it's all for some bands I've seen as well that begin to grow to despise their audience and nah you, you, you're there for a reason these people have put you there for yeah. a reason we're very lucky that we still get a lot of people come to see us you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not as big as we were in, in the 90s in this country yeah but we're big we're still as big in other territories around the world but because we put in a lot of hard work we can go around the world and, and probably play this size of venue three four five hundred capacity venue yeah anywhere in the world and that makes me really really happy and you would know, think that you know what we're doing makes people's lives better definitely that makes it that makes that's enough for me people have bought your album uh, to help get over a death or a breakup or they bought your t-shirt with their hard-earned money yeah their pocket money back in the 90s yeah. you know what i mean it's, and it's, any one of those things individually would be reason enough for me to still do it but when yeah. you've got the whole lot of them that's incredible yeah. so what's it like now when you've got these crowds that turn up to your gigs and you've got the 30 to 40 to 50 year old who bought trouble gun when it came out mm. who's there to hear those songs yeah. but you're also trying to I'm sure appeal to the kids there must be people yeah. that are buying the new album that are interested in your sound now yeah. that have come along do you try and still gain a new following or are you thinking well we've always going to have those mm. hardcore fans that have been there yeah. since the 90s mm. what's it like uh, we don't actively 
pursue a young no. audience because I think that would be folly. I mean, I'm, we're all wise. We know yeah. that you know, if say for example a cross faith or something like that that you know teenage girls absolutely love. There's no point us going after that market. No. A bunch of blokes in their forties and fifties because it's it's just yeah. going to look creepy. Yeah, and it's going to sound like a bunch of old, <laughs> yeah. old guys trying to be modern. Yeah, but at the same time, I think what we kind of try and do is keep it very much genreless, so that you know it's it, we we call ourselves an intense noisy rock band. Yeah, we're not you know we're not grunge, we're not industrial, nothing like this, and I think the nature of the band's lyrics and the nature of the band's kind of intensity will always appeal to all generations but we do see people coming along but you know for example we've just brought out the new album we play most of the new album in the set we play for an hour and 45 minutes so you know anyone that's that comes along and loves the new record gets to hear that but and also we play stuff from the 90s too yeah. so that you know if you do get the, the guy that's my age that has one gig a month and this is his big night he's not going to go home disappointed yeah He's got his child mind where his, his yeah. wife's giving him a night yeah, out and he yeah. wants to hear Screamager yeah. and he'll well, go mad. It's funny you mentioned that we've got our, um, we're really, really popular in, in Germany again. We were very popular in Germany in the 90s and the last two albums have seen a renaissance and our German promoter made a really good point and it's brilliant the way he put it. You know, he didn't try and butter us up and go, you know, your craft has risen to such a peak that you're now more popular than you were a few years ago. He's actually said your audience, uh, they, all, they all had kids uh, the kids all were, were being brought up by them, so they didn't go to rock gigs anymore. The kids are now all at uni and living away from home, so those people don't need a babysitter anymore, and they can go out and get pissed on a Tuesday night and not have to <laughs> yeah. worry about having kids. And he said that's why they're all back. That's and amazing. That. And that's brilliant, and it's true. Yeah. It is true. You know, you see, as you've said earlier, you get bunches. I mean, it's brilliant to see, yes, if you look down and see young people in the front row that have heard you for the first time or they've only bought your last two albums. Yeah. But there's also something incredibly heartwarming about seeing like a 48-year-old yeah. man trying to mosh like Definitely. you did, you know, years ago. And he, he was probably at that Donington show. He would have been, you know yeah. I mean? And that, I love that. I love yeah. That. There's room for everybody. With the way the music industry has now changed, where I, I couldn't believe that people are buying vinyl more now than CDs. Mm. CDs don't, no one buys CDs no, anymore. You no. know, maybe a couple of people for the car, that's yeah. about it. It's all streaming, it's all Spotify. Yes. It's yeah. nobody wants to hand over money for a record, mm. even though you're working your ass off, you're getting Chris Sheldon's come out of retirement. Yeah. Is it putting more pressure on a band now to tour? Because I see bands like Metallica now touring every two years instead yes. of every ten years. Yes. I used to wait yes. to see Pearl Jam eight years. Now yeah. I can see them every couple of years yeah. because they have to. Yeah. Does it put more pressure on you knowing that you have to tour? I mean, you, you sound like yeah. you're enjoying it and loving it, but yeah. do you think bands are having to change their way? No, they do. They yeah. have to because that's the only way you make money. It's not the 90s anymore no. where you make money off record sales. We bring, I mean, we talk to Marsh about this. And people stream our records. People, a lot of our fans are old. If they buy vinyl, we sell a lot of yeah. vinyl. And they, the funny thing was with them, they whenever they they signed us, they said, "Well, do you guys even want to release CDs?" And we said, "Yeah," because CD sales is, is merch. We yeah. sell CDs and we sign them, and they're they're like someone buys a T-shirt. Yeah. I mean, we were shocked. We got our um, whenever we go on tour, the crew travel in a tour bus, and we travel in a, a kind of jeep thing, you know, yeah. and so, so we can get to the hotel quickly, you know. And when we hired this car, the other, it was a brand new Volkswagen, but it had a CD player in it. And our tour management, I haven't seen a CD player <laughs> in a car for 10 years. Yeah, it's scary, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But it's a good thing because it's making bands without being you know, offensive to something, like get up off your ass and play shows because that's what well, you're that's meant it, to be yeah. doing. Don't just sit there and wait for the paycheck to come in well, from you. Yeah, as, as I mentioned earlier, and I know a lot of bands that hate touring, but they, they would have been fortunate enough to have sold a lot of records. Yeah. So they kind of like the whole being on the front of NME, you know, 
being a celebrity side of things, but the actual bit that matters, getting gigs out of the way, they wouldn't have liked. No. But I mean, I, I can't, I shouldn't really judge because I grew up in a provincial town on the outskirts of Belfast during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. No bands really wanted to come and play. No. And if they did, we would go and see them. I mean, I went to see so many bands that I normally wouldn't have liked. Yeah. And got my, you know, I remember going to see the Human League that I, as friends of mine from school, they actually came and played Belfast. But then the night that Don't You Want Me Baby went to number one, the Human League were in Belfast playing the Ulster Hall. Wow. And I knew nothing about them apart from their really early records yeah. when they were almost like a punk band. And I came along to see it and I saw Phil Oakey crying because everyone was singing the lyrics back. They were number one and they'd sold out a 2,000 capacity hall in war-torn Belfast. And afterwards I went and bought Dare and, you know, you just think this is incredible yeah change your life and that was you know but yeah people would like actually listen to our first couple of albums go how can you on earth how on earth can you like the human league yeah you know this is feedback and noise and kind of a brazen character no but they're amazing they write brilliant pop songs and they put on a great show so what is your music I heard you say a few times on today's interview that you're listening to a lot of new music Mm. you know I'm I'm bad I'm stuck in my ways I'll still listen to those bands that are Mm. 10 years old I, I, I try and listen to the new stuff but it's I just rely I'm a bit too nostalgic I like listening to my old albums that I fell in love with the early days mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. but what's the sort of music now that's like getting your attention that you're really impressed mm-hmm. with well at the, at the minute the current thing that I'm into well I mean I, don't get me wrong I still like to listen to a lot of old music and I still discover a lot of old music but I um, I listen to there's a band from Portland called the Arctic Flowers yep. female fronted post-punk and it really it's it's like a fresh take on the post-punk side of the 70s that I really liked an awful lot um, I really like a guy called uh, Burial he's an electronic musician and yeah. he makes almost soundtracky it's it's like um, rain sodden atmospheric it, wow. it's, 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 yeah it's, it's it's electronic music but it's got exactly the same atmosphere as maybe Black Sabbath or Joy Division that it's good. just very very atmospheric and there's a band I like from Leeds that are bizarre they're called Gutter Snipe they're a two piece they've, okay. um, they've got a drummer and a guitar player and it sounds like free jazz drumming with this insane uh, avant-garde music concrete wall of guitar through one guitarist and then shrieky vocals, which shouldn't really, I mean... It, it shouldn't kinda, work, but it, it shouldn't does. Work and yeah. does. And it, you know, when I describe it to friends, it says, oh, that sounds really annoying and pretentious, but it's actually not. It's, it works. It's really, really uplifting, yeah. Speaking to you today, uh, I really appreciate your time. It sounds like you're not going to be going anywhere. You know, when I do interviews with people, sometimes you get the feeling like they don't want this mm. anymore. You seem like you're 30 years in and you're still absolutely loving it as much as day one. Well, it's we are. nice to feel and nice to sit here and see how you're genuinely loving it. No, it's appreciate not an act, you know. No, I really appreciate that and yeah. appreciate you coming here and chatting to me yeah. as well because it's been great. You know, they've got the interest in the band and we, we've got, you know, we've got a 30th anniversary coming up. We've got plans to do a live record again. Uh, and then we're still working on six, album number 16 so we've got you know you're going nowhere are you no, no pun intended yeah, no, but, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, but we'll it's be, true yeah as long as, as you know, until basically something happens hopefully it doesn't you know we will be around all of us are really really vibed up at the minute and what's the 30th anniversary tour like do you think you might do Trouble Going its entirety or do you want a greatest hits sort of thing what, what's well, your plan well the first thing mentioned to all our all our promoters worldwide uh, you know, in Italy and in yeah. Germany and Belgium and, and Holland and Austria the minute we said we're going to do a 30th anniversary spectacular it was like oh you should do Trouble Gum we went well we did that a few years ago so we might I mean it'll involve something yeah. of Trouble Gum in it you know but we don't know yet but we are I mean it's being planned now so we want to make it really special and a few uh, on this UK tour there's been a few times we haven't played in the UK and Ireland and they've come back and went 
why aren't you playing this time around? It's probably because we'll, we'll be there for the 30th anniversary. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been great speaking to you. I'm looking forward to tonight and wish you the best for the next year. Tonight, the new album and everything. It sounds oh, great. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. So there it is. There's me and Andy from Therapy. And as I said, one of the nicest guys ever. And actually, when we stopped that recording, we started talking about films and TV and we were there for a lot longer. And I can imagine him coming back on and talking about films and stuff because he's very passionate and into the same sort of films as me. And just a real, real nice gentleman who had lots of time to give me. And I really appreciate it. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me. Like I said before the interview, if you haven't checked out the new album, do it. Literally go out there now and just buy it because it's absolutely awesome. And one of my albums of the year. And live, it was just as good. Before I get into the next episode, which you know by now, I'm not going to tell you who the guest is, but what I will tell you is it's probably going to be about a week until you hear it. At the moment, all these interview opportunities are coming available, and I'll never turn them down. But I do need your support. So if you go on to markandme.com, on there there's my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, my email. Please keep the feedback coming. I reply and read to every email, Facebook comment, to every tweet... Whatever it is I see, I'll always take time to read and reply. But not only that, I have a Patreon page. And without the Patreon support that I have, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I have to host it. I have to go out there and do the interviews. It all costs, obviously, petrol and expenses. And all the money that's invested in via Patreon goes straight into the podcast. And it's really, really crucial that you keep supporting me. So thank you to everyone that does. And hopefully I'll welcome more people and be able to give you more opportunities moving forward. So, until the next episode in just over a week, stay safe and thank you again for taking the time to listen to the Mark and Me podcast. See you soon.